if you were with us a few years ago for a Genesis series, which took a year or something, <laughs> you may recognize what I'm about to do with this chair. I want to ask you a question about this chair as a way of making a very important point about what God is doing in creation. Let me say that again. This is going to be a little bit complicated today. It's, it's worth following. It's great stuff, uh, but we're going to have a little bit of philosophy class here uh, to start out. I want to ask you a question about this chair that helps make a very important point about what God is doing in creation. And here's the question. The question is, what does it mean to say this chair exists? What does it mean to say this chair exists? Does it exist because it has uh, metal, it has cloth, it has foam, they're put together in a certain way, is it those kind of material properties? Does it exist because our senses can, in a sense, measure it? It, you know, it sounds like something, it, we can see it. We're not going to do this, but we could even like smell it if we wanted to or taste it. We're not going to do that. Don't worry, no tasting or smelling of chairs today. But what, is it, what does it mean to say this chair exists? Like we just kind of talked about on one level, we can say this chair exists because it has material properties. And uh, we have thousands of years of scientific evidence and inquiry to validate that one of the properties of existence for this chair is having material substance, biological structure to it. You know, protons, neutrons, and electrons, and lots of trons. But here's the question. Is a thing's material properties the most essential part of it that makes it exist? Is a thing's material properties the most essential quality of a thing's existence? Perhaps there are other ways to think about this question of existence. Let me, let me give you a little example and we'll come back to the chair in a minute. But, but, but think about what it means to say a company exists. What is a company? What is a company? Is a company something that exists when you file the papers of incorporation and uh, you get a name? It's, it's an official name with a little CO at the end. Does a company exist when it has a location, a building where there's something that happens in this space, in this particular place? Uh, is it something that begins to exist, that is alive in a sense when uh, maybe it gets a website? Maybe those things are a part of the, the, the puzzle, of course, but, but maybe it is best... Maybe it's most accurate to say that a company exists, and this is important. I'm tipping my hand about where we're headed here. A company exists when it does what it's designed to do. A company exists when it produces what it's meant to produce, whether that's a service or a particular kind of product. That's when a company is doing what you call a company. In the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, around the time when Genesis was written. This was what they considered the primary feature of existence. It was the most essential property of what it meant to say something existed. It was alive when it did what it was designed to do. Now, now don't get me wrong. that They obviously knew that material properties uh, are part of uh, something's existence. They knew that something existed if it had material properties, uh, but they did not believe that that was the most important factor. What they believed about the existence of something was that it existed, it became alive, it was animated. It was animated when it functioned in a way the Creator intended. 
the designer of that thing. So what makes this chair a chair is not that it has metal, that it has foam, that it has cloth. It, it, it's not even that it looks like other things we call chairs, if you are familiar with platonic forms and ideals. It's not even because those things here are put together in a certain way. It becomes a chair when I sit in it. Now it's a chair. Now this is a chair. Because it does what it's designed to do. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach from here. It's a little awkward here. This is vitally important about how we think about Genesis because that is one of the primary things God was doing in creation. He was giving it a purpose. He was giving it a function. He was forming it to do something. Just like taking meaningless parts of uh, metal and foam and cloth and, and, and putting them into a meaningful thing that did what it was designed to do. You see, Genesis 1 is not primarily about God making matter, though that was obviously a part of the process there. Genesis 1 is not primarily about God making matter. It's primarily about God making matter matter. Hashtag tweet that. Genesis 1 is all about making matter matter. And this matter more specifically, this matter matters when it is ordered around, when it serves the purpose for which the Creator designed it, which is to make known the goodness and the glory of God. That's, that's the whole shooting match right there. Let me, let me give you a little bit of an example of this with day one. We're not going to do this for every day. We could do this, and I could show you a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, you'll just have to listen to the Genesis series from a few years ago. But I want you to turn to Genesis 1, verse 2, which is where we'll start here. Genesis 1, verse 2. This is just one example of this idea that God was creating something, giving it existence by giving it a purpose. Giving it a purpose. Look at Genesis 1, 2. This is so important to get this right. I promise we're headed to marriage. We're headed to sex. We're going to answer those questions. Why marriage? Why sex? We'll get there eventually. Um, but if you do not get right this sort of way of thinking about creation, then then your reading of Scripture from then on will be off. Look at Genesis 1, verse 2. This will set up what we'll say about day one here in 3 to 5. It says, The earth was formless and void. The earth was without form and void. There was wasteland. It was uninhabited. It was purposeless. Um, of course, God did, for those of you who care, create ex nihilo out of nothing. Indeed, there are lots of places in Scripture that talk about that. Genesis 1, 1 is probably the only place in the whole first chapter that is... is explicitly ex nihilo. Uh, so basically everything after that is not, it's about this purpose thing for those of you who care about ex nihilo. Okay, Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void. It was wasteland, it was uninhabitable, it was purposeless. And darkness, it says, darkness was over the face of the deep, which is sort of a Hebrew and ancient Near Eastern way of saying the oceans were scary. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what it's basically saying. The oceans had all these animals in them that they were not aware of and so that the deep symbolized for them the sort of chaos and disorder of the world and so that's why it says the darkness is over the face of the deep and then it says and this is a great verse the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters i want to make a cool point here that that 
is not necessarily, it's just sort of tangential, but it's worth talking about. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. If you're taking notes, if you're a circler, underliner, highlighter, circle that word hovering. It's a great, great thing here that's going on in verse 2. In the midst of all this, God making creation about a certain purpose, there's this second verse at the very beginning of Scripture that says, God was hovering over the face of the water in the Spirit. That same word there for hovering is used in Deuteronomy 32, uh, verse 11, if you want to look that up later. Deuteronomy 32, 11, to describe an eagle sort of fluttering over its young, like a nurturing mother that's waiting to tend the nest. So that's the Spirit of God hovering over the waters to do something to that disorder and chaos that is loving. Like, like that motherly nurture figure over the nest. The Spirit of God is loving its creation, His creation, by doing something to give it purpose. So right here in verse 2 of the entire Bible, it says, God loves you. I mean, how cool is that? In the midst of all this creation stuff, at the very beginning of Scripture, it says God loves you. That's just a free little incidental thing, which is cool. So, the scene is set, chaos, disorder, can't live there, purposeless, all this stuff sitting there unused. When God goes to work, verses 3 to 5, and God said, and God said, all he had to do was speak, no strain or effort, he just spoke, let there be light, and boom, light. The light obeyed God's command. Throughout Scripture, the word listen is the same as obey. Let there be light, and there was light. The light obeyed God's God's command. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning, the first day, the first cycle of day. So here in verse 3, the light is called good because, not, not, not just because it has material properties that exists uh, in terms of, you know, we can measure it empirically and, and call it something and put it in a category. It's good because it's finally doing what God wants it to do. Throughout this whole first chapter, the word good primarily has to do with creation following God's commands. Creation obeying what He is saying about it. Creation existing like this chair. It's doing what God wants it to do. Alive. Dead. That's how it works. Following God's purposes. So, let me show you this in just a a bit of a deeper way here in these verses. Look at that little phrase in verse 5, that first phrase, God called the light day. We could do this with the darkness part two. We're just going to focus on the light. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Notice something interesting here. He calls the light day. And incidentally, uh, in many Bibles, about half, uh, day and night are capitalized. Some of them even have it in quotes. The translators are trying to give us a sense of, for what God is doing here by calling the light day. They capitalize day, or they put it in quotes, to help give us the sense that God is giving the light and darkness a name or a purpose. Uh, some of you may know that in, in the Old Testament especially, a name and purpose are, are the same thing. You name something because of its purpose. So, so track with me for just a second here about something cool that, that may not be something you've heard before about this verse, this is super cool. God calls the light, think about this. He calls the light day. 
why doesn't he just call the light light? I mean, light, light is light, right? It's a noun, it's this thing that's empirically, factually there, properties to it. But see, that's not what God's doing. That's not his purpose in this. He calls it by its function. What matters is not the matter, not the fact of light, <laughs> but what the light does, how it functions. It's giving us day and night. For the real nerds, look into how that happens to be about time there. So day one is not just about creating light per se, in and of itself, as a material thing, but it's primarily about giving light a function and a purpose. And this is the pattern for all of creation. All of it. This entire first chapter, including us. Including us. And that's where we're going to build into uh, answering the question about why marriage and why sex. I want you to see that what is going on here is that God is taking disordered stuff and giving it purpose. It's not just about making matter, it's about making matter matter. We'll stop with day one as an example, but we could make this point with every single one of these days. So God is giving this, this created stuff purpose, but what is that purpose? We'll get to that with sex and marriage eventually, but we're going to take a little second here for Genesis 1, 26 to 8, which is sort of the, the, the purpose in general terms, and then we'll talk about it in specific terms in chapter 2. The purpose for us in general terms, Genesis 1, 26 to 8, and then specifically in chapter 2. Uh, before we jump in, I just want to say that Genesis for us, for all believers, is super important because it's the place where we see God's intent for us. God's intent for us as, as people made by him, as, as the created stuff, him the creator. If you, if, you don't get, if you don't get stuff right in Genesis at the beginning of Scripture, you, you will misread a whole bunch of stuff. And Genesis is important because it tells us about God's intent. We're calling the series Identity because one of the assumptions is God tells you and me. God tells us who we are. God tells us who we are. And so in, in order to know who we are, we have to know his intent for his creation, for us, for marriage and sex. So it's crucial to understand what he's telling us in Genesis 1, 26 to 8. Turn there if you haven't yet. We'll jump in now. Genesis 1, 26 to 8. This is the end of creation week. Uh, I'm sorry, day, day 6. Right on the heels of creating sea and skies, plants and animals, everything else in creation. Then it says this, verse 26. Then God said, and what he's about to say here in verse 26 is meant to, a to be a contrast to everything that came before. So the text sort of reads like this. I'll just summarize by saying it this way. Let there be light. Let there be sky, let there be dry land, let there be sun, moon, and stars, plants, and animals. But now, verse 26, check this out. Let us make man, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. This is more than just plant and animal life. This is God making humanity with a little extra something. Actually, a lot of extra something. God put the secret sauce in, in it. I'm not sure that's Bible, but... God's stamp is on humanity. God's stamp is on humanity in a way that the rest of creation doesn't have. And we need to talk about two quick things here in Genesis 1, 26 to 8. 
to set the stage for us. We talked about this some last week. When we are made in God's image, it means primarily two things. There are some other ways to describe this, but it means that we can communicate with God to and from. We can communicate with God, meaning hear from Him, communicate to Him. And also, and this is the especially crazy part, I mean, that's crazy enough, right? I mean, we're finite, sinful, rebellious, I believe, totally depraved humans, and perfect, sinless, sovereign God of all creation. We can talk with Him. That by itself is crazy. This is also crazy. Another piece of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we are co-creators. Now, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we have supernatural power to automagically make things happen because I said, let there be light. That, that's not how it works for us. I mean, if that's going to happen, and I said, let there be something, it happens because God makes it happen. I just happen to be the vehicle for it, but he is the means of, of making it happen. So there are two things about this image of God thing. Number one, we can communicate back and forth with God. And number two, we are co-creators, co-regents. We are somehow in dominion of the world like he wants us to be. So, so let's just say it this way. Communicate and stewardship. We can communicate with God and we are stewards of creation, which is a crazy idea. And that's where we're headed here. <laughs> Think of it this way. Uh, on this stewardship thing, we can bring forth creatures according to our kind and steward them so they fulfill God's intent. That's the tipping of the hat right there. I mean, that's where we're headed for why marriage and sex. Like the rest of creation, we can bring forth creatures according to our kind. We talked about that last week. And we can steward them so that they fulfill God's intent for them. That is unbelievable. You may think, I love being a teacher. You, you may think, I love being a plumber. I, I love sales. I love whatever. You, you know, I, I love being a pastor, comma. However, however, to say that, that we can participate with God in what He's doing to bring forth this environment, and actual people where God's intent can be fulfilled in that environment and those people. That is crazy. Which is to say, that is who you are. That is who he made us to be. And, and, and we don't have the option of saying, hey, hey, Potter, I don't want to be what you're making me into. I don't want to be a vase. Make me into, I don't know, a swan. I that's what came to mind. Ever seen a clay swan? Neither have I. That's not a luxury we have. But think about practically how we how we live in defiance of God's purposes for our lives sometimes. And we do this all the time. I don't I don't really like I don't really like to, to do what God has for me to do, so I'm gonna go do something else. We can bring forth creatures and steward them so they fulfill God's intent, which is huge. That period is period, huge period. So keep reading, verses 26 to, to 8. That was supposed to be 30 seconds. It took five minutes. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Yes, that is a hint of the Trinity. There are pl plenty of other places, even though the word's not used in Scripture. The Trinity is real. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all creation, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's the stewardship of creation thing, like everything in all creation. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But listen to this. This co-creator, the stewardship, and this uh, idea of communicating with God, especially the stewardship thing, isn't just about earth, plants, animals, It's about the crazy thing we just talked about. Something more, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is the mandate. That is who you are. That is who you're meant to be. You're meant to be a multiplier of God's purposes. Not like, and, just, I mean, that's, that is who you are meant to be. And, and all your contentment and satisfaction and peace and joy and comfort in life depends on you getting that. Now, God says, hey Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, and, and this isn't Bible, but I can just imagine that, that Adam at that point must have been like, you want me to what? Now, I I see how the plants and animals are doing that. I I get that. (laughs) But you want me to, I'm not sure, how does that, you know, Adam's looking up to God saying, hey, Mr., you know, smart guy in the sky, I can't exactly reproduce myself, which is the problem. That's the problem. That's the problem and the tension in the text here. In Genesis 2:18, we could talk about a bunch of stuff up to here, but we're going to jump to 18. Genesis 2:18, where where God answers that question and tension that is there in the text. This is a more specific uh, retelling of day six. This is a more specific retelling of day six. It's sort of the microscopic view of the creation of man and woman. And it says this in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, as a response to the idea that Adam's sitting here going, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to do this, Jesus. I may not know Jesus yet, obviously. Uh, Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Remember all that stuff about good in chapter 1? We just mentioned that a little bit today. We talked about it a lot last week. This, this here, this situation is not good, he says. And what is not good, verse 18, is that the man should be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. Notice it doesn't say... It is not good that the man is lonely. It's not what it says. It says it is not good that the man should be alone. And we all know <laughs> what a travesty that can too easily become when a man uh, doesn't have someone else. Can I get a witness? Females. <laughs> On the inside, all the men are like, Mm-hmm, that's true. Now, if God's primary intent would have been to fix Adam's loneliness, he would have said, I will make a companion for him. But he doesn't. Which is to say, seeking companionship as the primary intent for your marriage and sex life is, a, is an exercise in discontent. It's an exercise in shaking your fist at God in rebellion and saying, I, I'm, I'm going to... Grab this from me. Because you don't you don't see what's going on here. He says, the man should not be alone. Then he says this. <laughs> what a great line. I will make a helper fit for him. 
God made a helper because there's work to be done. There are animals and plants to tend, but also there are babies to make. Keep reading, verses 19 to 20. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Notice how this is paralleling what God did in naming the light day. This is the same kind of thing. It's a parallel to that. It's this creative purpose idea. And this part of the work, it's part of the work, but, Houston, we have a problem, but, verse 20, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There was more work to do than tending to inanimate creation. So, so, verse 21, God gives provision to accomplish his purpose. That's huge. God gives provision to accomplish his purpose. So, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. The word here for man is Adam in Hebrew, which is where we get the word Adam. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then, verse 23, this is where Adam breaks into song. This at last is bone of my bones. I mean, something like that is kind of what I envision. And that's not Bible, but, but this, is, this is sort of a celebratory, uh, rejoicing kind of way of speaking here. He's saying, this at last. This is what I need. So many of you men out there are like, I, that's, that's true. <laughs> A bunch of you women are out there going, I know that's true too. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of that flesh of my... They're one. I mean, she was made from his flesh. That's a picture, this same flesh idea, a picture of their relationship and the intimacy of their relationship and of joining with, not just physically, sexually, not just emotionally, but joining with God. Joining with God to be fruitful and to multiply, to have God's goodness and His glory produced from their relationship. We talk here about making disciple-makers. And one of the key places we talk about that is in Matthew. A whole bunch of places. There's a great commission in every single one of the Gospels. This is the first great commission. Disciple-making begins in Genesis 1. To be fruitful. To multiply. And then this this is the kicker. Verse 24. It says, Therefore... In other words, because there's this work of making known God's goodness and glory, being fruitful and multiply, because there's this work, for this reason, therefore, a man, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There it is. Why sex? Why marriage? Simple answer. The primary purpose the number one, two, and three purpose of sex and marriage, contrary to whatever you've heard, whatever you've seen, whatever you've experienced, whatever you were taught, numbers one, two, and three about why sex and marriage 
is the primary purpose is to make disciples. To make babies who love the Lord. Marriage is about making disciples. That's the first great commission. Now this is, this is crucial to the purpose of marriage. This is crucial to the purpose of marriage. When we use the word crucial, what we mean is the thing that we're referring to is so centrally important to what it is that we're referring to that to take it out would be something else. It's crucial like the cross is crucial to Christianity. You take the cross from Christianity, it's not Christianity. You take the cross away, the gospel is not the gospel. That's why we say that something is crucial. So without it, it's something else. So to say that disciple-making is crucial to the purpose of marriage is to say that disciple-making is as important to marriage and how we define the word marriage, do you follow? It's as important to marriage and how you define the word marriage as the cross is to Christianity. Which is why, as we're talking about in this series, we talked about gender identity last week, we're going to talk about homosexuality this week, which is why same-sex marriage, or so-called same-sex marriage, because same-sex marriage doesn't actually exist in God's intent. I mean, you can put paper on it, you can pass laws all you want, but it's, it's not going to change how the Creator God made the world. It's just not going to. So to say that disciple-making is crucial to the purpose of marriage is to say that disciple-making is as important to what marriage is and how we define the word marriage as the cross is to Christianity, which is why so-called same-sex marriage isn't God's intent, because it doesn't work. Now, I know for some of you, um, probably mid-40s and younger, You've grown up in this culture where um, you, you, you have an emotional response to what I just said. Like, you, you can't tell that person that they're not allowed to get married. I, listen, I'm not. I mean, I think they shouldn't because it's not, it's not marriage. But to say something different is to, to look at God in the face and say, I got my own purposes for this thing. I got my own purposes. It doesn't work for a whole host of reasons. And neither does, for example, sex outside of marriage. Sex outside of marriage is not the environment God intends for marriage or for sex. Sex outside of marriage is not the environment God intends for it where His goodness and His glory are the primary purpose. Which is to say that sex outside of marriage happens because you love physical pleasure more than you love obeying God. Sex and marriage are intended to produce godliness. Now this idea of, of, of marriage as a disciple-making environment uh, has all kinds of implications. Let's just talk a bit about these. If you're married, if you're married it means that your kid is not your kid. Your kid is not your kid. I, for some of us, I need to say this 20 times. Your kid is not your kid. Never was. 
just like you are not your own. Never was intended to be. As a parent, you are a steward of this wonderful creature. So, so the question is, are you, uh, are, you training, are you training them for a production of godliness? Or are you, are you training them for civic duty, for social respectability, for getting into the best schools, for keeping the family name? Or are you training them to produce godliness from their lives? Friends, to keep the family name, to keep the family name for the follower of God is to continue his legacy and not yours. And not yours. So if, 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 you're, a, if you're a husband, if you've got kids, and you don't have any males to keep up the family name, don't worry. Don't worry, you are. If you're producing in your family, in your marriage, and with your children, a place where God's legacy is the primary focus. God has given us these children to be nurtured and developed for godliness. So, so do something practical with them. Don't just assume that the church is going to do this for them, that the children's minister, that the youth minister. Just Please do not assume that it's somebody else who's going to do this for you. God has given them to you to steward for the purpose of godliness. So get practical and do some things like... I, 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 can hardly fathom how parents on a regular basis are not praying with their children at least daily. I mean, teach them how to communicate with God for crying out loud. I, read Scripture with them, please, 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 please read Scripture with them. I think that's even more rare than, than praying with them. I think it's a token Christian thing to at the end of the, in, end of the day for 30 seconds tuck them in and make them feel nice and cozy and pray with them as if, as if that's going to model entirely godliness. Read scripture with them. Sit with them and, and, and go through this. Teach them how to think godly thoughts. And when you get stuck in places because they're asking questions you don't have answers to, there is no better motivation for learning than getting to the end of your education. Teach them about God when you're in the car together. Talk about Him when you walk, when you rise, when you sleep. Deuteronomy. Goodness sakes, put the, put the preaching podcast on in the car and make them listen to me, for goodness sakes, if you're, if you're wanting to really, I was going to say really train them, but maybe torture them. <laughs> they, may, they may have the time be going, I don't know what he said, but I know what a, smell, what a chair smells like. If you're not married or you can't have children, uh, or you don't want to have children, uh, the idea of marriage as disciple-making is key. The idea of marriage as disciple-making is key. But it's not just about marriage. It's about all relationships in our lives. So the idea of marriage and relationships as disciple-making doesn't by itself mean you cannot participate in the work of making known God's goodness and glory if you don't have kids, if you can't have kids, if you don't want to have kids. Remember, the primary intent is God's goodness and glory being made known, and you can do that without making babies. I mean, you, you, you can. You can make God babies, even though you don't have biological babies. I mean, anybody who follows Jesus is, is a child of God. So marriage isn't just an incubator for babies, it's a, an incubator for God's holiness, for His character to be formed in you, so you will reflect God to others. And if you're single, not married, can't, or don't want to have children, 
You bear God's image no less than married people. So your job is the same, to make known God's goodness and glory in your life, with your resources, with your marriage, with your relationships, with your singleness, with whatever it is. I mean, Jesus and Paul both say that there's an advantage to singleness for ministry in ways that married people have a hard time accomplishing. Uh, If you're not married and you live together or you play married for crying out loud, make it right, please. Make a commitment before God and before your family and before your church to make your marriage about godliness instead of financial convenience. If you're not married and you want to be, here's my advice. Go, period, find, period, a, period, mate, period. Stop, please, 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 please. Stop letting worldly assumptions about what makes for a good marriage or relationship guide your warm fuzzies about whether or not you, you can be with someone. And just please, for goodness sakes, listen to Jesus and find a mate that understands what we're talking about today. If you find somebody who cares about God's goodness and glory from your marriage, you've got a mate. You've got a potential mate. So if you're not married and you want to be, find a mate who understands that marriage is about God's glory and uh, not the selfish idol of your own warm fuzzies, which, which, by the way, is the same reason Fifty Shades of Grey is a perversion of God's intent because it's based on your own emotional warm fuzzies that have nothing to do with what a good marriage or good sex life looks like. It's a perversion of the truth. It's a story of two people making their sexual relationship an idol that produces selfishness and greed and lust. How's that working for you? We know what misuse and perversion look like. We know what misuse and perversion of God's good intent looks like, not by knowing well and experiencing personally what that perversion looks like, God forbid, some of us have, most of us in some ways, as if we try to know what it is as empty, but we know misuse and perversion of God's good intent by as much as possible experiencing God's good intent. It's like how the government teaches experts uh, in law enforcement how to spot counterfeit money. They study the real thing from top to bottom, inside out. Hmm. They study the real thing from top to bottom, inside out, so that they can instantly spot a fake. Some of you are, are struggling in your marriages and in your relationships and searching for a mate, etc. because God's purpose in Genesis 1 and 2, is not your primary thing yet. You, you, you may not know this well enough yet. Study the Scriptures, and then we'll know what a fake is. Then, then we'll know, when we're in a relationship with somebody, this person, not for me. So here's the question for us all, friends, and we'll end with this. Given, given what we know about what God was doing in creation, uh, giving it the purpose of making known His goodness and glory. Given that definition of existence, do you exist in those terms? Are you alive to those purposes? 
in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your home. If you are dead to God's purposes in you, the hope of the gospel is that there, there's an opportunity to repent from that, to, to, to have hope because God has given us uh, the life of His Son for us. In a, in a great exchange of His perfect life for our sinful life, which is actually death, God extends to us real life. And friends, think of, what, think of what God would do to make Himself known if we took seriously this idea that He tells us who we are and that we fought hard We prayed hard. We we studied hard. We spent time seeking hard after the things of God and His purposes for our lives. Life transformation would be the norm. It would be the norm for you and for this body of believers. Friends, let's pray.